Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with Francesca. I'm Francesca Luke, your host, and I'm excited to be with you here today. I want to talk to you. Let me know what you're thinking. Is there a show suggestion you want to make? A question you have for my guest or for me, or just you want to tell me what's on your mind, I'm here. Email me at info at talkwithfrancesca.com. You can also go to my website at talkwithfrancesca.com and fill out the contact form there. You can also visit me on Facebook, and I promise I will get right back to you. And if you miss part of the show, you can go to recent shows on my website, again, talkwithfrancesca.com, and listen there. And my awesome intern, Maria, just got me on iTunes, so I'm pretty excited about that. All right, we're going to get started. Lots to cover today. Breast cancer has been around since ancient times, and it can affect any woman. Breast cancer was a taboo subject for years, and many women were victims of this serious disease. But fortunately, this subject went from being taboo to having an entire awareness month. Its diagnosis and treatment have come a long way, and now many women have the opportunity to get cured and live through this disease. So today with us, we have Dr. Ernie Bodai, who directs the Breast Health Center at the Kaiser Permanente Sacramento, which has been recognized nationally as a center for excellence. He also just happened to create the Breast Cancer Research Stamp. So good to have you back with us, Dr. Bodai, on Talk with Francesca, and welcome. Thank you, Francesca. Always good to be with you. So what's we've, every year we've talked about breast cancer, and what's changed? Anything? Well, um... There's actually a couple of things that have come about uh, since the last time we spoke, and uh, I think that the biggest advance that we're seeing now is a very good understanding of genomics or the genetic makeup of breast cancers, and this is opening the door to what are called targeted therapies, where we are designing new drugs that will actually be specifically made for an individual patient. And as such, the side effects that are seen with the standard nice. chemotherapy regimens that we've been treating women with for dozens of years um, will become minimized. And therefore, the side effects of the chemotherapy, the hair loss, the vomiting, the fevers, the infections, loss of libido, mood swings, etc., will start to be minimized with the treatment of cancer in the very near future. Does the stage have anything to do with that? Uh, of course it does, yeah. Um, you know, the different stages of breast cancer, uh, you know, have to be treated uh, sometimes more aggressively. But again, these targeted therapies are really meant to address any stage of cancer. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing that women, I, I don't know for sure, but it seems that that would be the first thing that women would think about when they're told, they're be given this diagnosis of what's the stage. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's absolutely correct. They want to know, you know, uh, how advanced the disease is. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, with, you know, uh, more education that's out there, more awareness that's out there, women are getting their mammograms uh, hopefully more frequently than um, than some others that haven't been so faithful to mammograms. And the importance of that is that 
we can detect lesions that are very small, very early, even stage zero, so-called cancers, which are non-invasive, but they're still considered cancer. But with the uh, advances in screening, we're finding cancers earlier and earlier, and therefore, the better the chance for a cure. So how, how often? Once a year? Is that still pretty standard? It should be once a year, and you know, I'm glad you brought that up because in the last couple of years, there's been a tremendous amount of confusion regarding uh, indications for mammography, and several uh, well-respected organizations, such as the U.S. Preventive Task Force, came out with a rather silly recommendation a couple of years ago saying that we really shouldn't get a baseline on uh, women until they're age 50, which I thought was extremely irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'll tell you about a third of the ladies are in the 40 to 50 range. So if you take a lady who's got uh, developing breast cancer at age 42 and they're not symptomatic and you don't tell them to get a mammogram until eight years later, they're going to have a much more advanced disease. So... That was kind of irresponsible and caused a lot of confusion, not just amongst patients, but even within the medical community because they don't know what to recommend based on these things. Even the American Cancer Society softened up their recommendations to go to mammography every two years instead of every year after age 40, which I also think is probably not a wise thing to do because women can develop a cancer that can grow within two years. It's terrible. Now, women who have breast implants, do they have a greater chance of getting breast cancer? No, uh, there's been no association with um, with implants. There is a rather unusual uh, cancer that was reported in a couple hundred women around the world that seemed to be associated with implants, but it's so incredibly rare, it's probably not even worth addressing. Mm. So let's talk about you a little bit. I, I know that you and your family lived in a bomb shelter for nearly a year before escaping during the Hungarian Revolution in 1957. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you managed your escape? Well, yes, sure. Um, So, you know, many of your uh, listeners are probably aware of the fact that in 1956 there was the um, uh, communist invasion of uh, Hungary. And uh, we, uh, my dad, in fact, was was called a freedom fighter. Um, We were resisting the invasion, and we were forced to live in a bomb shelter for probably about six months before my dad made the courageous decision to escape uh, from Hungary. So, uh, one cold evening in October 56, we uh, took off and headed to the Austrian border. We started out with about 600 people on a train that was heading that way. The train was then stopped about 10 miles before the border by um, uh, some communist soldiers. And so we fled on foot, um, hid in a barn, um, and eventually made it across the border. But I, I distinctly recall, even at the age of six, that when we were running for the border, they had these guard towers, you know, the ones they see on, on TV and whatnot. And, you know, people were shooting at us. So uh, the bottom line was about 300 of the people turned back. About 150 of the 600 were killed. And, and we were fortunate enough to make it across the border. And then I spent a year in a refugee camp in Austria before we were able to immigrate into the United States because. Actually, the only reason we got in here in 1957 was because my dad was a physicist. He had a Ph.D. in physics and in math. He was kind of a brainiac. And at that time, the National Science Foundation was coming every six months or so to examine the refugees. And they didn't want the refugees to fall back into the communist hands and become, you know, um, 
you know, aid in the, in the development of weapons of mass destruction. So because of my dad's uh, background, uh, we were brought into the United States uh, so that we wouldn't fall back under communist rule. I can't imagine living through such a violent event. I mean, obviously it was very hard and, and very traumatic. How did the experience change your life? Well, actually, it had a dramatic effect on my life because when I came here to the United States, I didn't speak a word of English, neither did my parents. And it was um, my upbringing was very sad because my father, who was a very, very smart man, as I mentioned, um, really could never get a stable job. You know, his background uh, was in aerospace. And, of course, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, it was still kind of an era of McCarthyism where, you know, people felt like... Uh, you know, communists were going to take over the world, and they were very suspicious. So my dad never got a, a decent job because he couldn't get a secret clearance because he had relatives behind the Iron Curtain. And the mentality was that, you know, if you have relatives there, you know, the um, communists might get them and then, you know, force you to do, you know, divulge secrets, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, my dad had a very tragic life, um, never was able to secure the type of job that he should have had, given the background that he had, and having a foreign degree and having an accent and relatives behind their Iron Curtain all stacked up against him in terms of being a, a successful uh, physicist in the United States. So yeah, he had a very tragic life, and it affected me because, uh, you know, I, I grew up with very little, and I made a commitment to myself that, you know, as I grew up and educate myself, I'm never going to let um, the burdens that I fell under with my parents uh, pass on to my children and, gra and grandchildren. So uh, my dad's courageous move was a very motivating mm -hmm. move to me mm -hmm. to be successful. What encouraged you to be a doctor? Well, that's, uh, you know what, that's funny to ask because uh, I made up my mind to become a physician at age 11 which was a very, um, it was kind of a gift because, you know, most people struggle to find what they want to do till they get in their late teens, early 20s, mm. some even later. And the event that sparked my interest in medicine was the birth of my younger brother, um, which was, just, uh, I just looked at it as a miracle, you know. That was back in uh, the 60s, and, uh, you know, at that time, you, the family was not allowed to go into the delivery suite, so you had to wait outside, and, and I remember on a Friday night around 10 o'clock that my mom got wheeled into the operating room because she was in labor. And an hour later, she comes out with this little child in her in her arms. And I was like so incredibly struck by that experience. I said, you know what? This is so incredible. I'm going to be a doctor. But so, but that that was obviously an OBGYN, right? That delivered the baby. Well, I was going to go into that. Yeah, my plan was actually to become an OBGYN physician and then... Um, when I started medical school and started doing the various rotations, I kind of gravitated into the field of surgery as my primary uh, focus. And what was it about surgery? Uh, the thing about, you know, surgery is an interesting uh, profession because, you know, it's, it can be rather quickly gratifying. And what I mean by that is mm -hmm. that, you know, you can... The patient can come in with appendicitis or gallbladder disease, and you operate on them, and mm -hmm, you know right. a, day, a day later they're well. Right, and so you feel good, you know, as opposed to being an internist where you see somebody and their blood pressure is high, and you see them back again, and they're not making any progress. You know, it's kind of a the rewards don't come as rapidly as with surgery, where you can just kind of cut out a diseased organ and you're done, and the patient's fine. 
Okay, so if you were a painter, you would not be an oil painter. You'd be... (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm talking to Dr. Ernie Bodai, who has created the breast cancer stamp. So why did you develop such an interest in finding a cure for breast cancer? Well, that's interesting, too. I, um, you know, my, early in my career when I came to uh, Kaiser right out of surgical training, um, within a year or two, I became uh, chief of surgery of a rather large uh, surgical department. And by the way, just for the audience to know, I didn't become chief because I was terribly talented. The reason is because nobody wanted to do the job. <laughs> so I just kind of fell into that role. And Oh, you're so modest. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So back in the early 80s, um, when I assumed the chiefship, um, the major issues that a chief was involved with were second opinions. And the majority of patients who wanted a second opinion obviously were breast cancer patients. And when I met these ladies and went over the issues with them, the vast majority of them wound up staying with me as their primary surgeon. And uh, so my practice really developed into a major focus on breast disease and uh, cancer of the breast, and that's how I got got involved in that. And then I was getting very frustrated about the lack of advances in the treatment of breast cancer because back in those days, you know, we were doing horrible operations, you know, very deforming operations with a lot of morbidity to them. And uh, so I was trying to figure out how to raise more money to um, for breast cancer research, and that's actually how the stamp came about. Well, you just okay. So I, that was my next question. Uh, it, and how long did it take you um, before the stamp was actually ready to be sold? Well, what happened was uh, I was preparing a lecture for the American Cancer Society on the history of breast cancer, uh, which is fascinating. As you mentioned at the opening of the show, it goes back thousands of years. You know, it's it's been known for like 4,000 B.C. was the first case that was actually described, but it's not described in the surgical textbooks. It's actually in art history. And as I was preparing this talk, I was looking at all these, you know, rather, um, you know, beautiful paintings of women with breast disease, et cetera, et cetera. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if there was a stamp for breast cancer, you know, as a commemorative type issue? Mm -hmm. And about Two minutes later, I said, you know what? If we price that stamp a little bit higher than the normal stamp, we could raise a lot of money. And so mm. that was sort of the genesis of it. And then I wrote to the Postal Service about the idea, and they immediately said, no, it's not right. going to happen. Right. We're not fundraisers, and we have to do it for colon cancer and lung cancer and kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera. So that really infuriated me. So I wrote to the 50 female representatives and senators in Congress at that time. And I got not one reply. Huh. And really? That, yeah, that infuriated me even more. So then I started, to, I said, I'm going to Washington, D.C. and figure out what's going on here, why these women won't reply to me about such a sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. And I literally walked up and down the halls of Congress for two years trying to get legislation introduced to authorize the Postal Service to issue what's called a semi-postal, uh, which is a stamp that's priced a little bit higher and then extra funds would go into research. And it took about two years to do that. So two and a half years, I think about oh, maybe 12, 14 trips to Washington, D.C. Um, you know, met with congressional people, had some good meetings, had some not so good meetings. Sometimes I would go and not get appointments with anybody. And so it was kind of frustrating many times. Actually, I said, you know, I'm beating my head against the wall. There's no sense in doing this. And 
I was going to quit, but Francesca, the reason I couldn't quit is because so many of my patients had gotten behind what I was doing oh. and were supporting me in so many ways that there was no way I could come home and not have achieved this. So I just felt like I would have been a major disappointment to all the ladies that were really supporting my work behind the scenes. So how did you get there eventually? Well, eventually the bills were introduced and, you know, as, as you know, the Congress was kind of dysfunctional, uh, probably more so today than back then. <laughs> um, I don't want to get political about yeah. this thing, but, um, yeah. you know, it was, uh, to me, it was a, it was a bipartisan issue. You know, it wasn't a Democrat or Republican issue. It was, it was an issue about the health of women and their families in the United States. And so, I was able to convince several representatives to introduce bills, and Senator Feinstein introduced the Senate version of the bill. And after much lobbying, uh, the bills were passed, and then uh, President Clinton signed the bill in 1998 um, to authorize the stamps uh, issuance. That must have been quite a day. It was uh, it was quite incredible. I must say, it was a heartwarming experience. In fact, we were invited. Uh, the stamp was unveiled at the White House in a White House ceremony. It was the first time ever that the stamp was unwe- unveiled at the White House, and um, my family and I were invited to the ceremony. It was quite it was quite moving. Yeah, still have to tell us about that night. Well, it was uh, it was in July of 1998, and uh, the stamp was unveiled on July 29th, 1998. And uh, you know, uh, the postmaster general was there, and uh, at that time, Miss um, um, Clinton was the first lady, and she unveiled the stamp. Um, you know, in the East Room of the White House, uh, with a large group of uh, you know media folks and dignitaries that were there, and uh, she gave a very heartwarming speech about. Healthcare of women in the United States, particularly with uh, regards to uh, breast cancer. So it was, a, it was a very heartwarming experience, I must say. And and how do you feel the stamp has done? This is since 1998, and how much money has been raised? Well, you know, I'll tell you, last year we sold the one billionth stamp with a B. Uh, wow. So we sold over over a billion stamps. It's now the highest selling stamp that has ever been issued by the Postal Service. Yeah, what's it selling and, for now, today? It's now sixty cents a piece, wow. as opposed to a first class stamp, which is forty nine. It originally started out at forty cents, but that was when first class stamps were thirty two cents. Mm-hmm. So we were getting eight cents per stamp. Then it went up. Uh, first class went to thirty five, and then eventually we had to keep raising the price of the breast cancer stamp as well. You know, to keep the monies flowing. Mm-hmm. And are you satisfied with with the amount of um, sales? Well, you know, of course, I like to see it higher. I would, right. uh, I would, and that's why I appreciate coming on a show like yours to help spread the word about it. Because, you know, it's really disappointing is that I travel a lot and speak, I do public speaking, and um, so many people have never heard about the breast cancer. Stand. I know, they, I know. I'm just, I, it's amazing to me. How how me do you nuts. think that you could get the word out there more? Well, with shows like yours, of course, are extremely helpful, mm-hmm. and I like I say I travel quite a bit and and do a lot of uh, a fair amount of media when I'm invited to uh, spread the word about it. But the real secret here would be that the post office should actually push the stamps. See, if a person walks into the post office today mm-hmm. and they say, "I want to buy some stamps," they're given the regular stamps, and so in some post offices they are. You know, you have clerks that are very interested in the um, concept, and they go, would you rather buy the breast cancer stamp? 
And, of course, most of the time the ladies do. Right. Um, but many of the clerks don't even bring it up, so the the uh, clients aren't aware that it exists. So post office could do a major push by telling their clerks, hey, whenever anybody asks for a stamp, make sure you bring up the breast cancer stamp. Well, at the very least for the month of October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah, and several, of the, several uh, post offices around the country actually do push it during October. But, you know, this is another thing that, that kind of irks me because... I don't think there should be a breast cancer awareness month. It should be awareness every month, you right. know, not just in October. It should be mm-hmm. a year-round awareness campaign, not just a month. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now, has someone close to you been affected by the disease? I'm sorry? Has someone close to you been affected by breast cancer? No. Actually, nobody in my family has ever had breast cancer. Um, my wife, my uh I don't have any daughters. My mom is fine. I don't have any sisters, but no, I've never had breast cancer in my family. I personally had prostate cancer almost uh, 17, 18 years ago, um, which is, brings up an interesting topic because, you know, breast cancer and prostate cancer are actually quite similar in terms of, you know, obviously one's in males and the other's in females, although men do get breast cancer, but it's only about 1,600 males per year diagnosed with breast cancer. But um, you know, if you look at the two diseases, so you have 250,000 women diagnosed each year with breast cancer, 250,000 men with prostate. About 40,000 die each year of the breast and prostate cancer. Both Combined or breast- each? Uh, no, each. Mm-hmm. So 40,000 women, 40,000 men. Then mm-hmm. there, there are, you know, most of the prostate cancers and breast cancers are found early because they're it's screening technology. So for women, we have breast self exam, clinical exam, mammography. For men, we have uh, the rectal exam and the PSA. So stage one prostate cancer, stage one breast cancer have cure rates that exceed 90, 95%. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of ironically similar because the treatments are the same. So there's surgery chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and hormonal therapy, which is used to treat both cancers in males prostate and females breast. So they're kind of they're kind of very similar side by side. In fact, so years ago we had a project going called Screen Together, Live Together, mm-hmm. where we would uh, um, advocate that when a woman gets her mammogram or the husband should go and get a PSA done. And so I have been, we've been doing that for quite a long time. And oddly enough, as the population ages, more and more couples are being diagnosed with their respective cancers. And why do you think that is? Why? Um, well, um, the reason is this, that if you're a female and you live to be old enough, you will get breast cancer. And if you're male and you live to be old enough, you will get prostate cancer now. That's not to say you're going to die from those diseases. So many women die with breast cancer, not from it, and many men die with prostate cancer, but not from it. That's interesting. I have my mother's 91, and my aunts all lived to be between 90 and 95, and none of them had breast cancer. Yeah, and that's actually, you bring up another very interesting point, and I was talking about guidelines for screening, and, you know, uh, a lot of organizations now stop screening for breast cancer and prostate cancer at age 75. The reason being is that if you're diagnosed after that age, you're probably not going to die with the disease. You know, you're going to die from a heart attack or a stroke. 
uh, more likely than from the cancer. So that screening is kind of dropping off in the elderly population because you're not going to treat them, you know, particularly if they have a lot of comorbidities like heart disease and pulmonary disease and kidney failure, et cetera. So do you think they just don't know that they have breast cancer? Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously the vast majority of breast cancers are totally asymptomatic, and so they're not going to know that they have it. Mm-hmm. And if they're not getting screened, we won't find it. Mm-hmm. Now, I do want to make a point about that, too, is that, you know, there's a chronological age and a physiologic age. So chronologically, a lady may be 85, yet physiologically, you know, she's got a clear mind, no heart disease, and she's more like a 65-year-old rather than an 85-year-old. So on that lady, you would do screening. Interesting. An early diagnosis can save your life. Dr. Boda has tips for prevention and an early diagnosis. When we come back, stay with us here. Don't touch that dial. Be a mistake. Captain Lord Mansion is the ultimate bed and breakfast experience. It's the only AAA four diamond bed and breakfast in Kennebunkport. But it's so much more. It's the perfect, elegant, romantic getaway. Relax at their day spa. Be pampered in your room with heated floors, jetted showers and tubs, gas fireplaces, king and queen beds, flat screen TVs, and all the quaintness with all the modern conveniences. Be surrounded by impeccable gardens, waterfalls, fountains, a putting green. A charming gift shop, wine cellar, the list goes on and on, including a full three-course breakfast. This is a stay that you will never forget. Engage in our special offers. Call 207-967-3141. 207-967-3141. CaptainLordMansion.com. In Kennebunkport, Maine. Memories and elegance await you. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you might just want to venture out to Boston this weekend and dine at Terramia's Ristorante. A true gem among all those rhinestones in Boston's North End, this cozy trattoria with stucco walls and beam ceilings specializes in creative interpretations of Italian classics. Like the cuisine here, the atmosphere is elegant yet understated. Since opening in 1993, Terramia has aimed to convince diners that there's always more to Italian food than red sauce. Over the years, the inventive and beloved restaurant has done a great deal of convincing. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. This best-kept secret is worth the trip. Call 617-523-3112 or visit TerramiaRestaurante.com. Life is constantly evolving, relationships beginning, relationships ending, careers progress while some fail to thrive, fortunes abundant or only two pennies to rub together. When life is at a crossroads, psychic medium Ann Donald has helped thousands locally and all over the country, including myself with her psychic insight and guidance. Anne is not only a professional psychic medium, but she's also the girl next door and extremely down to earth. Once you meet her, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So visit her or book your appointment today at annedonald.com to find out about her offerings and hear what people are saying about Anne's readings. That's www.annedonald.com. Curious? Check her out. You'll be glad you did. Losing weight can be overwhelming, especially if you're a busy woman. You barely have time for yourself, never mind diets, exercise programs, or weight loss advice. 
Unfortunately, though, Lene Urban, creator of Operation Fix My Life, has just the solution to your weight and health problems. Operation Fix My Life will help you create a unique work-life balance. So discover the five-step formula to eliminate stress, transform your health, and rest your way to weight loss without starting another diet or going to the gym. Go to OperationFixMyLife.com slash courses and start your journey to a stress-free life. Transform your health and lose weight through rest-based fitness. Now what are you waiting for? All right, we are back, and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Dr. Ernie Bodai, and we are discussing breast cancer. He's also the creator of the Breast Cancer Stamp. Welcome back, Dr. Bodai. Thank you. So we know that an early diagnosis can save your life, but what are some tips for prevention um, other than obviously you know, getting a mammogram every year and examining yourself. I know that um, years ago, my gynecologist told me, you know, there's a difference between a woman having one glass of wine per night versus two. There's a 50% greater chance of getting breast cancer. Is that true? Uh, yeah, you know, everybody's bantering about, about alcohol consumption. And typically, you know, if you have two or three glasses of wine per week, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference now and the person that has two or three glasses of wine every night yes their chance increase maybe not by 50 percent but 30 40 percent chance higher of getting uh, cancer because salt that the alcohol interferes with the metabolism of estrogen in your body and the vast majority of breast cancers are fueled by estrogen so you want to keep your um, alcohol consumption to a minimum so that you don't interfere with the metabolism of estrogen in your body so two or three glass i'm not a big drinker but but two or three glasses of wine um actually a week doesn't seem like much at all i mean i thought that you know maybe a, a glass a day was supposed to be healthy for you is that not right yeah that's correct and particularly red wine because the, the grapes have a resveratrol in it which is felt to be an antioxidant mm-hmm. and so it actually may protect against heart disease which by the way is the number one killer of women in the united states is not breast cancer you know breast cancer is the most feared disease heart mm-hmm. disease literally literally kills seven to ten times as many women every year as does breast cancer so you're saying drink red wine not white well yeah minimal consumption of red wine is probably not going to hurt you it might even help you in terms of cardiac disease when you say minimums okay so so what what would you recommend well i would i would recommend none but (laughs) (laughs) oh but but you know being a realist i think that you know two or three glasses a week is not gonna cause any damage so you would recommend no alcohol at all i would yeah you know alcohol is is a toxin obviously um be it in wine or hard spirits or even beer. Again, because it interferes with the metabolism of estrogen. But, mm-hmm. you know, for those people that enjoy a glass of wine every once in a while, um, continue to do so. Well, especially that, you know, if you have a little bit of anxiety, you know, a little bit can actually, I mean, anxiety is a killer too. Anxiety and stress are um, very much linked to the development of not just cancer, but other diseases as well. Because they affect our immune system. Right. And, you know, if you're under a lot of stress and you've got poor sleep hygiene, you're not sleeping and you're 
constantly stressed out about work or family or other personal issues, yeah, that's going to take a toll on your immune system for sure. Now, what about coffee? Does that affect breast cancer, getting breast cancer? Coffee, no. Jessica, coffee has not really been shown to, you know, there are some studies that have weak association, but I think coffee's kind of off the table at this point. I'll tell you what's more important is the diet and lifestyle that you follow, and that's become a major interest of mine, and the the avoidance of processed foods hmm. and meat and dairy products. In dairy? Yeah, dairy. Listen, dairy is dairy's not good. You need to stay away from dairy products. And I'll tell you why. Particularly milk. You know, there's a big misconception that milk is a good source of uh, vitamin D and calcium. But here's the situation: is milk also has high levels of estrogen and antibiotics in it. And the the dairy association these days, they're milking cows year-round, whether they're pregnant or not. And the pregnant cow has estrogen levels that are sky high. That's going into the milk. The milk is then, you know, shipped off to the consumer, and it's got, you know, a lot of hormones, antibiotics, and whatnot. And that's one of the reasons I think that young girls today are actually starting their periods at an earlier age because they're consuming a lot of milk because they think that's a good thing for them, and so they're stimulating, they're consuming estrogen at an earlier age. So, you know, 20, 30 years ago, women were starting their have their menstrual cycles, you know, around age 11, 12, 13. Now, young ladies are starting as low as eight and nine. Does it make a difference when a, a woman begins her period um, and breast cancer? Yes, the younger you are, the higher the chance. And then, and conversely, the later you go through menopause, the higher the chance. And the association, association there is felt to be this, that, you know, if you, let's say you start at 10 and end at 55, you've had 45 years of cyclic variation of your hormones. And then if you start at 15 and end at 50, you only have 35 years. So... There's that that cyclic variation in your hormones is felt to contribute to the development of breast cancer, which brings up the point too about ladies who are now delaying pregnancy Next because question, of careers, yes. mm-hmm. uh, careers, et cetera. You know, um, they're moving up and they're not having their first pregnancy till maybe forty, even even later. Some ladies and. It's felt that a woman who has their first pregnancy between the ages of 18 and 30 decreases their chance of getting breast cancer because they stopped that, even for nine months, they stopped that cyclic variation Hmm. of the rise and fall in estrogen. So women who didn't have children or don't have children have a greater chance also? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, women who've never had, uh, born a child or had a pregnancy have a greater chance of getting breast cancer. What about um, it being hereditary? Does is there a bigger chance, or what? What what's the well, the, the status? That's on another that? interesting thing is that only about five percent of breast cancers are hereditary. It's a very small number, um, and you know, it's five five percent or less. It's Fairly common in women who are Ashkenaz, the Jewish descent, Eastern European. Um, they tend to carry the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene uh, more often than women who are not of that ancestry. Uh, but literally only about 5% of women are affected by the gene. Now, that being said, you know, 10 years ago we were testing for two genes, the BRCA1 and BRCA2, 
And now we've gotten so sophisticated that we actually test for 46 genes that are related to breast cancer. The problem is that we don't understand the significance of some of the abnormalities in, in the genetic profiles that we're developing. So we are inducing a lot of anxiety and you know, kind of have a uh, genetics test done and maybe they find a, an aberration in one of these uh, genes, but they don't know what it means. They don't know if it's associated with colon cancer or mm-hmm. development of pancreatic cancer. So science has gotten ahead of our understanding of the genetic basis of disease. So this is just, um, this is all just so amazing, so much great information. What, um, let's talk a little bit more about lifestyle because we we started with that, we started with a little bit of that and I just want to, um, you know, get back to that. Yes. So lifestyle issues are extremely important, and um, here's what I recommend. Stay away, stay healthy, and maintain a healthy body weight. And the way you can do that is by eating lots of fruits and vegetables, legumes, uh, nuts, seeds, and stay away from meat, particularly red meat and processed meat. You know, um, Like the cold cuts, you're talking processed meat. Cold cuts, yeah. They're hot dogs, bologna, uh, that kind of thing. Oh, Those yeah. are... Garbage probably the most unhealthy thing that you can yeah. consume. And what happens is, here's what happens, Francesca. When these uh, manufacturers are processing foods, they do two things. Number one, they strip the nutritional value of the food. Right. And number two, they add thousands, literally thousands of chemicals to decrease cost of production, increase shelf life, and make the food tastier. Well, that's great, except that these chemicals were never meant to be consumed by the human body. And when we consume these products, they go into your gastrointestinal system, which is a very powerful immune organ. And that organ recognizes these chemicals as a foreign body, sort of as an invader. And it starts reacting to them by producing a number of inflammatory proteins that then circulate in your blood and are responsible for the two killer diseases in the United States, which is coronary artery disease and cancer. If I were to go to Thailand or the Far East, Mm-hmm. and set up shop as a cancer surgeon or a cardiovascular surgeon, I literally would go out of business because these diseases are non-existent there because they don't consume all the processed foods that we eat. Yet, when these people migrate to the West, within 10 to 15 years, they become westernized. <laughs> their instance cancer, their instance coronary artery disease becomes the same as the Western population. What about sugar? Sugar is interesting, you know, you should you should obviously minimize your sugar uh, intake because sugar, if you if you develop prediabetes or diabetes, mm. um, it's a very complicated chemical pathway. If you develop insulin resistance, you you get uh, you gain weight, and obesity is another huge risk factor because the fatty tissues in the body, particularly in the midsection, which everybody struggles with. Mm-hmm. Produce and store, number one, estrogen, which feeds the majority of can- breast cancers. And number two, these same fatty tissues produce and store these inflammatory proteins that are responsible for heart disease and cancer development. So minimize sugar intake as much as possible. But here's the problem is that most of the processed foods have a lot of added sugar, oils, fat. So you've got to be very careful when you read the labels on the products that you buy. You don't read the big part. You've got to read the little, the tiny letters that you can barely see because <laughs> that's, that's where they hide the added sugars that are put in and the salt and the oils. 
It sounds like you're suggesting a vegan diet. Is that well, you know what, I, I, I use the word vegan um, very carefully because I don't think it's, it's a good term. I think it intimidates a lot of people. And, yeah. and you know, everybody associates you with PETA and all that stuff. I, what I prefer is a whole food plant-based diet. Well, a whole food plant-based diet, though, is, a, is no meat, right? And fruits, vegetables, uh, whole grains, and... Whole grains, fruits, seeds, nuts. Legumes like peas, lentils, beans are an excellent source of protein. But the you know, but no meat. meats, no no chicken, no turkey, no eggs, no. Dairy. No, yep, exactly. Eggs, eggs are bad for you. And then you know the eggs are bad for you. Yeah, eggs are very bad for you. Why is that? Well, they they're first of all they have a lot of cholesterol in them. Um, mm. They contain literally no fiber. And they come from chickens. Now, chickens are raised in not the the, the best of even cage-free chickens, you know. They're given hormones, again, to make them plumper because they, the industry makes money by the pound. So if you got a larger chicken breast, you're going to make more money. Mm-hmm. So they're given hormones, and they're given antibiotics, which is another very interesting thing because Ugh. these processed foods, particularly the meat and dairy stuff, have antibiotics in them, and... So every time you consume these products, you're not just consuming hormones, you're also consuming antibiotics. That's why we have a huge problem with what are called um, uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria. Right. Because we give out antibiotics like they're, like candy. You know, you go to your primary care That's physician. ridiculous, with a, yeah. With a sniffle, and here's a prescription for an antibiotic that you don't need because usually viral anyway. And then the the flora in your whole body changes, and then now there's such a proliferation of uh, sales of probiotics. But now, is that just a lot of hoopla, or is there some uh, real merit to no, taking that stuff? Actually, no, it's not hoopla at all. It's, in fact, uh, you're very, very very up on the topic because we have gotten to understand, uh, well, just barely getting to understand what's called the microbiome, which is the... Uh, the flora of the GI tract. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's good bacteria and bad bacteria. Right. And when you consume the processed foods, the bad bacteria tend to outnumber the good bacteria. Right. So you bought probiotics, which if you're eating a healthy uh, diet, you don't need. But the one instance where probiotics should be considered is if you are put on a course of antibiotics for a significant infection like a sinusitis or something where we have to give the antibiotics, then probiotics are probably a, a good thing to take along with that to help replenish the healthy bacteria that are going to get wiped out by the antibiotics that you're taking. So that it's not something you should take, though, every day, just like with your I brain? With I, your... No, I, I don't think if you're eating healthy, no. And if you're not taking antibiotics chronically, you probably don't need probiotics. You're, you know, our, our bodies are a lot smarter than we <laughs> than we are. Mm-hmm. They know exactly what to do. Um, it's just that, you know, when we overwhelm our microbiome, our gut micro, you know, the, our gut gut bacteria with all these toxins, then mm-hmm. then we got a problem. But now that I'm just thinking about what you said about dairy and I'm thinking about frozen yogurt and, or not frozen yogurt necessarily, but, you know, those super high end yogurts and um i thought that yogurt was was great for you and and was bringing in the good bacteria so they say no yogurt is okay if you uh eat a soy based yogurt 
as oh. opposed to dairy based. So you want to stay from dairy altogether. But if you, if you if you're a yogurt lover, look for products that are soy based as opposed to dairy based. So you're saying that soy because there's there's been a lot of um, discrepancies and you know differences of opinion <laughs> about soy. You know the tofu's and and that kind of thing. Since we're talking about lifestyle and and you know tips to yeah, that's, to that's uh, a very interesting point that I want to address with you is that soy is actually. You know, 10 years ago it was condemned because it's right. the phytoestrogen. It's a plant-based estrogen, and people thought that estrogen is bad. Right. Well, the truth of the matter is that the the soy products, the uh, phytoestrogens, actually compete with the your own endogenous your the your own endogenous estrogen, the estrogen that your body makes and that feeds the cancer cells, the soy products actually, because they're plant-based estrogens, compete with the receptor sites on the on the breast tissue for your hormones versus the phytoestrogen hormones. So there actually have been studies done now, uh, many studies that have shown that women, even in the setting of estrogen receptor positive tumors, which the majority of them are, if they consume high amounts of soy, they actually have a longer overall disease-free survival and a lower chance of recurrence. Now, the oncologists are terrified by the E word, which is estrogen, so if you see phytoestrogen there, go, oh, no, you can't have that. But it's actually been shown on a number of significant studies that soy is protective against getting uh, breast cancer or breast cancer recurrence. Is there any place on the web, I mean, of course, you know, just searching around, but any place specific where um, we can direct our listeners to go to have a certain type of a diet that will help them if they have breast cancer or trying to avoid breast cancer? There's actually quite a few sites. There's um, um, one of the best ones is nutritionfacts.org. Mm-hmm. which is run by a gentleman named uh, Dr. Michael Greger, and he's got a, puts out videos um, almost on a daily basis. And he addresses all sorts of issues related to healthy diets. Then there's the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, mm-hmm. which is also a very good um, website. And then um, there's the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which is also a very excellent website. So there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of sources out there now. Again, I want to warn the listeners that they will find some confusing information. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's also another one called the Plantrition Project, which uh, addresses plant-based diets and uh, not just breast cancer, but other diseases as well. See, in the Western world, because of, because of the diets that we consume, we live in a chronic state of inflammation. Mm-hmm. And these are these inflammatory proteins that I keep talking about. Mm-hmm. And they're the result of the processed foods that we eat. And then, you know, meat, for instance, meat has no fiber. Okay, right. Another thing we're talking in, you know, the average woman in this country should be taking about 40 grams of fiber. The average woman probably takes 15 to 20. Fibers is, you know, low fiber diets are associated with an increased incidence of colon cancer. You go to Africa, you can't find colon cancer because... The people eat such a high fiber diet; it right. just doesn't exist there. Right. So we need to, and and you can get your fiber from your fruits and vegetables and legumes. And you, you know how much fiber meat has in it? Zero. All right. it's got is cholesterol and fat. 
Right. Now, this um, type of lifestyle sort of changes your epigenetics. Is that right? Yes, it's epigenetics. Yeah, which is not epigenetics is a relatively new field, and it it's not talking about the gene itself. It's talking about alternative factors within the gene and around the gene that can alter the DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, you know, Francesca, I just wrote a, a fairly lengthy article on lifestyle medicine um, that is available online, a free download, and it's called Lifestyle Medicine, mm-hmm. a brief review of its dramatic impact on health and survival. Can you repeat that one more time for our listeners? Yeah, I can. It's a uh, Lifestyle Medicine, a brief review of its dramatic impact on health and survival. And if you put that into Google and then put a slash and put my last name, which is B-O-D-A-I, mm-hmm. it will come right up. It's published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's a free download. And it goes into all the things that we've been talking about. Fabulous, fabulous. So it, it sounds like, well, of course, we, we this is not necessarily news, but, you know, we are what we eat. Now, what about exercise? Exercise and diet, diet and exercise go hand in hand. Um, so exercise is uh, good for a number of things. Obviously, weight control, yep. strengthening the bones, because some of the drugs that we give actually weaken the bones, uh, you know, particularly in breast cancer. So it strengthens the bones. It's good for anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, just and you have to do real vigorous exercise. If you walk thirty minutes a day, five times a week, that's all you need. Yeah, you know, you know. I'll tell you, I, I used to really just be crazy with the exercise and the weights. And you know what? That's what I do about maybe forty-five minutes of walking a day. And you know what? I feel fine. I feel like I'm getting my exercise, and I'm I'm happy about it. However, you know, not lifting weights, so that means my, you know. My biceps aren't getting as, you know, firm as maybe they, <laughs> they, they should. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm speaking with Dr. Ernie Bodai. He created the Breast Cancer Stamp. Now, you have um, a, a global breast cancer stamp that you're that uh, is, is coming out. Is that right? Yes. Actually, we have stamps uh, with the same Im- image as ours in 23 other countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And they're translated into the appropriate language. And the funds that are raised in those countries that have issued that stamp stay in that country. They do not come back to the United States. So every country has a stamp, keeps the money. And in those in those countries, third world countries that have the stamp that don't have a research infrastructure, the money is used for outreach, education, and treatment. How did you come up with the logo for the breast cancer stamp? And listeners, you can go right to my Facebook page and see the breast cancer stamp. Um, talk with Francesca uh, on Facebook. It's Which... a beautiful uh, piece of art. Uh, it's a picture of Diana. Art. I didn't do. I didn't do the artwork, by the way. A lady named Whitney Whitney Sherman in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, designed it. But it's a picture of Diana Artemis, who's the Roman mythological protector of women, and she's reaching for a bone or quiver to fend off an enemy, in which this case, obviously, is breast cancer. And the, the position that she assumes is also the position for some exaggerated views of mammography and the position for breast self-exam. So there's kind of a subtle message in the image for the ladies to get their mammograms, to do your breast self-exams. And then the right breast has been removed and replaced with our logo, which is fun to fight to find a cure. And then the the rainbow of colors represents the fact that, um, you know, it's typically 
uh, hope, symbolizes hope. In this case, it's uh, hope for a cure. So it's a very powerful piece of art. Mm, it's, a, it's a beautiful stamp. Um, Dr. Bodai, what is the Taylor X breast cancer trial? What is the what? Taylor RX? Yes. Oh, the Taylor RX, um, it was a study that was actually funded almost $10 million of the stamp money that was raised funded that trial. And uh, what it does is it looks at a woman's uh, cancer and analyzes it for 21 genes. So if a lady has breast cancer, you can look at 21 genes in her cancer that apply to not one other woman in the world, strictly her genetics. And you develop a recurrence score. And if that score is low, typically less than 19 to 20, it tells us that the ladies do not have to be subjected to chemotherapy because the recurrence rate is extremely low. And if they get a mid-range score, then the cops first, but if they get a high score, then they definitely need to have uh, more aggressive treatment. It does seem that that that, that uh, breast cancer has a, a lot more attention. Well, obviously that it than um, you know it ever has, but even more so than other cancers. Is that right? Uh, that's that's absolutely true. And it uh, actually, I'll tell you what. It started um, the history of, of this really started in Hollywood when uh, Hollywood got on the bandwagon with mm-hmm. uh, H- HIV. Mm-hmm. And they made that their sort of slogan disease. And then the, the breast cancer community actually emulated the HIV community and started raising awareness about it back in the 70s. And that's really the model. HIV was the model for uh, diseases getting significant attention. And, of course, you know, breast disease is a very emotional issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right. so it gets a lot of attention. A lot of large companies, you know, I hate to say this, but they do kind of profit from the disease. Um, kind of irks me a little bit. You know, they have pink uh, right. cake mixers and pink socks and pink this and pink that. And it's gotten a lot of attention. It's the disease du jour for sure. And then, you know, they give a portion, right, of, to breast cancer research. But you always wonder what that portion really is, right? Right. Right. Yeah, so... so- yeah. Well, we just have about uh, three minutes left, and I just wanted to ask you, is there anything that I haven't asked you or that you want to share in the next three minutes uh, with our listeners that, that, that will make a difference in, in uh, their lives or something that they might need to know? Well, I think the, I think the main message that I really want to put out uh, in this conversation is that you can actually have a major effect on your overall health, including decreasing your chance of getting breast cancer by Maintaining a healthy lifestyle, which is all about diet and exercise. Eat highly, stay away from highly processed foods. Eat more vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, seeds. Watch your weight. Keep your BMI as close to 25 as possible. Exercise. And really, that's the message is that we are in control of our own health destiny. We can influence ourselves actually much more effectively than most physicians. You know, the primary care doctor, you walk in, your cholesterol's high, here's a pill. Your sugar's high, here's a pill. You know, you got hypertension, here's a pill. They have a pill for every ill. Instead of sitting down with the patient and saying, look, you've got to change your dietary habits. You've got to start exercising. You got to stop smoking. You know, we can do these things ourselves. And actually, people who have smoked, even if they've quit, they have a greater chance of getting cancer, don't they? Yes, they do. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So, so 
put those cigarettes down right now, right? Yeah, yep, put it out. <laughs> but, but yeah, well, I mean, that's, yeah. And and lastly, too, I think that, you know, mindfulness and meditation and yoga and those kinds of things, I think they matter quite, quite a bit as well. I think they're very important, particularly in terms of stress reduction, well, as we talked about. Yeah, earlier. I mean, today with, you know, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram, I mean, there's just, there's no rest for the weary. And, you know, you talk about going on a diet. I mean, I think it's once a week. Um, you know, it's good to just go on a social media diet. I know for myself about once a month, I unhook that stuff. I really do for a week. I just like, you know, I'm not doing any kind of Facebook or social media. It may sound like a crazy thing, but you know, and they always want to know, you know, can you tell us why you're leaving? Will you be back? You know, but I really feel like it's, it's a healthy thing to do. I you need to disconnect. You need to and dis- disconnect. And, and I think that I just want to um, end with that. I also think that connections are really important. And I think that the, the more healthy connections that you have and, and having a, a strong community, I think that can also make the difference between um, illness and, and health. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Dr. Ernie Bode, I thank you so much for joining us today on Talk with Francesca. It's really been a pleasure as always. My pleasure, Francesca. I really appreciate you hosting uh, the show and and giving out some wonderful information. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. And thank you. All right. It's time to wrap things up. We've got to say goodbye. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you only listened to part of it, please go to my website, talkwithfrancesca.com. Under recent shows, you can find the show there. You can also find my show on iTunes. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. 